So we're talking about an anchor in the storm today. Anchor in the storm. Um, show of hands, who here likes a good thunderstorm? Every now and then. It's better than snow. You don't have to shovel that. The, the, the beautiful thing about a, a, a storm is that the situation, the environment can make that storm either really great and enjoyable or really bad and not so convenient. The, sta- the same storm can be really, really great or really inconvenient. For example, Rachel and I love, my parents love going to the cottage every summer just for a week and Well, of course, we want the sun. We want to be able to swim in the lake. Every now and then, a good thunderstorm at the cottage is is welcome, isn't it? Get the puzzle out. Do that for about five minutes and then take a nap. But at the cottage, (laughs) at the cottage, a thunderstorm is beautiful. You're safe inside. When Think back to when you were a little kid at recess. Thunderstorm, not so welcome. You just get your outdoor shoes on. Just get your jacket on. Just get your baseball glove in hand to go outside for that 15 minutes of freedom that you have. And that thunderstorm ruins your day in grade... In in grade three, the thunderstorm is the worst thing that could happen, isn't it? For most of us. The severity of the storm also depends, though, on how prepared you are for it, right? If you're camping and you're not an experienced camper, a thunderstorm can be a way to ruin the weekend... Uh, a few, several years ago now, Rachel and I and two of our friends went down to Michigan to watch a Michigan Wolverines football game, and it was, it was an experience. It was an awesome time. It started out a beautiful day. Um, we just had a jeans and a t-shirt on, baseball caps, and we were just in this whole experience, cheering on, cheering on the players, just enjoying the, the whole experience. Then about the third quarter, we saw clouds start to roll in. And then some rain. And then something I've never experienced before. The PA announcer called us to leave the stadium because a storm was coming in and we were sitting on metal bleachers. (laughs) And so we thought, we'll wait this out. Even though we are in jeans and t-shirts and hipster shoes with no socks, we will wait this out. And then we decided about about the time the fourth quarter should have been starting, we need to leave because our car is parked miles away. Needless to say, the storm ruined our clothing, the only clothing we really had for the weekend. And so we, we, were, we were a sight for sore eyes at Denny's that night for dinner <laughs> in our track pants and shirts we came to sleep in. We were not prepared for the storm, and there it was not enjoyable. Now, typically, the storm that we read about this morning, typically that it wouldn't necessarily have been much of a problem for the disciples and for Jesus The Sea of Galilee, storms were actually quite common, based on the geography. The sea itself is about 700 feet below sea level, and just to the north of the sea is a very large mountain, 9,200 feet tall. And what tends to happen is cold air from the mountain and warm air from the sea continually clash. Storms and squalls are common on the Sea of Galilee. Keep in mind as well, that several of the disciples, before they left their jobs to follow Jesus, what were they? Fishermen. This is old hat. They're used to this. They spend days and days and nights and nights out on the water in these storms. They know what to do. They can show others what to do in the storm. And I mean, add on to that the fact that Jesus himself suggested 
Let's cross over tonight. Let's go to the other side of the sea. Jesus knew what was coming. He was in the boat with them. He did not seem to be worried. He was asleep on the cushion. Storms were a natural part of life and creation. On the surface, this should not have been too much of a problem. In fact, I imagine that in the three or so years that Jesus had with the disciples, they probably weathered many storms out on the water. But I think you picked up on the fact, and many of us have heard this story before, that this night seemed to be different, didn't it? By all accounts, this storm was unlike anything these men had experienced. Professional fishermen were afraid for their lives. They were convinced that they were going to die. They had come to an end of themselves, exhausted all of their experience and their knowledge, They could not see a way out unless someone or something intervened. Have you ever been there? And they wanted out. Because that's what we all want, isn't it? It's human nature. I want a way out. We want to be removed from the storm. It's the cry of the human heart. God, take me out of the storm. We want the uncertainty to ease Or the issue, the unresolved issue to be resolved. We want confusion to be over. The pain to be healed. We want the fear to go away. We want out. And if you think about it, perhaps you'll agree that quite often in life, we even base our understanding of God or our worship of God or our hope in God on whether or not he removes us from the storm. In other words, often like the disciples, we cry out, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care that I'm drowning here? And then we answer the question for him based on how quickly we think he's removed us from the storm. In other words, God is good if he takes me out. But I want to ask us to consider something this morning. Is that our call? As followers of Jesus, like, What if the life of faith was actually about something more? What if God was actually up to something greater during the storm? When life is swirling, when things seem more uncertain than they are certain, when you can't seem to picture a day when the fear will be over or the pain will be healed, how do you persevere in a way that glorifies God? In other words, the question I want us to consider this morning is as followers of Jesus, what can we do in the storm? What can we do while we're in the storm? And I want to suggest that we can watch Jesus, we can worship Jesus, and we can hope in Jesus. Watch, worship, and hope. Let me start with a few thoughts on what, it, what I think it means to watch him. Again, show of hands, who here is like me, finds it hard to admit that you don't know something? Some of us are afraid to raise our hands because we don't want to admit that we don't want to admit that we don't know something. We want to know why the way things are. We're not great as humans. We're not great at asking for help, are we? Because it, it is us admitting that we don't know. This is me, in a nutshell, at the grocery store when I'm by myself. I will wander that store 
for an extra hour to find that thing instead of asking for help. I will call Rachel multiple times. Hey, you know Fortino's. Where in the world is red Thai curry paste? I don't think it exists. And she will say, just ask somebody. I don't want to ask. Because then this stranger, who I'll never see again, will know that I don't know where this is. We don't like to admit that we don't. More than that, deeper, we want to know why things are the way. This is particularly true, I think, in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus. Don't we constantly long to know why God is doing or isn't doing something? Why God hasn't answered prayer? Why God seems to allow certain trials of life to linger? God, why? It has to be one of the most common prayers of the human heart. God, why? I, I, I even wonder if hearing the story read this morning, some of us were thinking, why did Jesus stop that storm and not mine? But I think to live a life of faith, we actually have to get really good at, knowing, at not knowing why God does or doesn't do what we thought he would. We have to get really good at being okay with not knowing why God does what he does. Simply because he's God and we're not. It's the beautiful invitation to follow Jesus. It's not ignorance. It's not blissfulness. It's the recognition that God is good. That he is majestic, that he is supreme. It's recognition of the truth that he can't be understood fully. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that's okay. He's allowed to because he's God. I have to accept that I cannot know why all the time. And yet... At the same time, realize the beautiful truth that I can know him. I can't fully understand all of the ways of God, and yet he chooses to make himself knowable. And we can know him. Relatable. Church, I don't know why God does or doesn't calm the storms right away. But I do know that he always reveals himself to us during them. Always. In fact, I believe he reveals more than he removes because what we need more than the right circumstances in life, what we actually need is to know him more. And perhaps one of the challenges we face in navigating the storm is that we get so fixated, so hung up on what God is or isn't doing for us when he's actually inviting us to come and see how he's revealing himself to us. You see, Jesus was doing a lot of uh, several intentional things out on the sea that night. This story is so much greater than him just getting the disciples out of a scary situation. He desperately wanted them to see more of who he was. What did they see? Look at verse 39 to 41 again. It says this, that he, Jesus, got up and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased. And there was great calm. Then he said to the disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. 
And they asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Did you pick up on the fact that the disciples were seemingly as terrified, if not more afraid, after Jesus calmed the storm than they were during it? It was over. Jesus had silenced it. The wind was gone. And the language describing the sea was like it was glass. It wasn't just wavy and chalky. It was, it was over. That which was causing them fear was over. So why were they afraid? It actually makes a ton of sense. You see, in this ancient time and culture, in many different religions and beliefs, the sea was a cause of great fear. Great respect. The sea represented a force that was outside of man's control. Some believed it to be evil, while others simply feared the fact that it was essentially uncontrollable, uncontainable. If it got going, you were at its mercy. And in many different religions and different belief systems, the one thing they shared in common was that only God had the power to control the sea. You see, the, the, the disciples thought they knew what fear was when the waves were crashing into the boat. But then, they watched Jesus stand and he talked to the wind and he talked to the waves as if they were like hyper unruly children. And they obeyed him. You see, they were terrified because Jesus had just demonstrated the power that only God has. He revealed himself to the disciples as more uncontrollable, more uncontainable than the sea. And he wanted the disciples to see that about himself. I think it's fascinating the way Mark tells the story. Just a few minutes before that, in a panic, they woke up Jesus. And did you notice what they called him? They called him teacher. Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Now, I haven't been in school for several years, but my memory is pretty good. I don't remember any of my teachers doing anything like this. He was their teacher, to be sure. But after this night, they would need a different word to describe him. Wouldn't you think? What do we do? What can we do in the storm? Watch our Savior, more than the swirling sea. Because there are many things you will see and know of Jesus out on the water, out on the sea, that you cannot know standing on the shore. And often that's exactly what God's up to when life is swirling. Watch Him. Watch Him because He's saying, I want you to see me. I want you to know more of who I am. Often it's as simple as shifting our, the way we pray. From God, would you take me out of this? God, would you remove it? God, would you bring an end to this? And instead, begin to pray, Jesus, what are you up to? Jesus, what do you want me to see here? And can I encourage us as the body of Christ to invite others into that prayer as well? Ask your brothers and sisters in Jesus, can you pray for and with me that together we might see more of who Jesus is? This is the beautiful thing of the body, the the body of Christ, is that when someone's life is in a storm, we're all there with you. Can we shift our 
prayers and our focus together. Don't feel like we need to fill in the gap of God, why? God, why? We don't need to figure out the answer. We simply need to accept his invitation. Watch me. Jesus, what are you up to? Jesus, what is it that you want to reveal about yourself to us as the waves are rocking? What can we do? We can watch him. We can watch him and see what he wants to reveal. Secondly, we can worship him. We can worship him. Let me be a bit more specific, though. I think what I, what I mean here is we can worship Jesus for who he is and not just what he does for us. We can actually worship Jesus in the storm because he's worthy of it, even when the waves are crashing in the boat. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is worthy of your worship only after he's calmed the storm? Or do you see that he's worthy of your worship simply because he alone can and has calmed it? It's a big difference, isn't there? Often, sometimes, we can tend to think, like, when this is over, when God removes this, when God takes me out of this storm, man, then there will be some praise reports coming in. Then... We'll have a praise party. Then I will truly be able to sing on a Sunday morning after the storm is over. But we know that that's not true worship. Right? That's actually withholding praise until God does something for us. When worship is giving honor and glory and reverence to the one who deserves it. Regardless of the circumstances. Scripture says it's, it's owed to him. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Regardless of the storm and the weather of life. He's worthy of our worship, church, because he has revealed himself on this night as Lord of all creation. Think about how powerful that must have been for the disciples to realize the only one who could command and rebuke the weather is the one who created it. This is important. Jesus didn't call on some other power. He didn't start into some magical incantation to try to trick the weather, he simply said, quiet, be still. That's enough. And it listened. Jesus was and is divine. He is God. He is Lord. We must see and appreciate what the disciples started to understand that night. The same God who brought the flood and then caused it to stop. The same God who parted the Red Sea. The same God who who told the sun to stand still one day. Was the same God who stood in the boat that night. The same God that we worship. As we watch him and we see him. Church, will you worship him right there in the boat. Even as it's rocking and the rain continues to fall. Will you worship him in the middle of the sea. Simply because he's worthy of your worship. Simply because the wind and the waves still obey him. And they always will. What if our first thought in the morning, what if our first thought in the morning started to become, how can I praise Jesus for who he is today? And not just what he does. What if we regularly asked one another that and spurred one another on towards worship throughout the day? Even beyond what has God done that you're thankful for, which is absolutely important. But also, how are we praising Jesus for just who he is? Even when the storm is raging. One of the best ways to take our eyes off the storm is to worship 
the Savior and the boat because he alone is worthy of it. And finally, number three, during the storm, we can hope in him. We can hope in Jesus. And what I mean here is specifically placing our hope in Jesus. And the reason I make that specific is because often in the storm, while we are crying out, Jesus, do you care? Jesus, do you care? Do you even see what's happening to me? We can sometimes have a tendency, the human heart starts to place our hope in people to save us rather than in Jesus. Perhaps at times it feels like God isn't really there or he's letting us down or that he's not good at the moment. During that time, of course, our church family is supportive always and will always care deeply. But we have to remember they cannot be our source of hope. People cannot be our source of hope. That's not their role, and they cannot do that. They're unable to save. We're going to lead each other back to hope and pray with each other for hope and, and model how we can persevere towards it. But it's the hope of Jesus that's our anchor, not the hope of other people. Now, the challenge is, and I've been there myself, is that often if you perceive that God is inactive, or you literally see him sleeping on a cushion... And you legitimately ask, Jesus, do you care? You're asleep, do you care? If you perceive that God's inactive, quiet during the storm, it may seem like those in your world, that people actually care more than he he does. And so we can shift our, our hope to them. They can kind of fill in the gap as we think God has not answered the question, do you care? But part of my heart, Part of my burden today, and I think one of the reasons I'm here this morning, is to remind us, not even tell us anything new, but remind us that this Jesus who can calm the storm, he's always good. And he alone is your hope. And he has answered the question, do you care? He's already answered it. Here's how we know. I love how Mark tells the story. Because to many of his first audience, his first readers, it would, have, it would have sounded very familiar. Particularly those who knew the Old Testament scripture. The way that Mark tells this story is very, very similar and parallel to the story of Jonah. If you are familiar with the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet of God, a messenger. That God gave a task, a mission to one day that Jonah did not want to do. He did not want to go to these sinful people. And so God said, go here. And Jonah said, I'm going to go here. And to get here, he got on a boat. Jonah quickly found himself out in the middle of the water on this boat in the center of a storm. Just like the disciples, the men on Jonah's boat were terrified in the middle of the storm. They were thinking that they were going to drown. The Bible says that each of those sailors was praying to his own God, hoping it might save them. Again, From the uncontrollable sea. Jonah, if you remember, was asleep. And he was woken up, just like Jesus was, to terrified men saying, we are going to die. Don't you care? How are you sleeping? We are going to die. And now in both stories, the storm was calmed only because of a miraculous intervention of God. Israel's God, Yahweh. 
And the stories are almost identical in many ways until we hit the significant difference. In the story of Jonah, he told the men in the boat that in order for them to be saved, in order for the storm to stop, they needed to throw him into the sea. Do you remember that? He recognized that he was the guilty party. He recognized God's sovereignty. And so he said to the men, in essence, Jonah chapter 1, if I die, you will live. And they threw him into the sea and the storm stopped. And of course we know that there's a whole other part of that story and God miraculously saved Jonah. It's incredible. But the throwing into the sea to stop the storm, that doesn't seem to happen in Mark's story, does it? And it doesn't on that night. But it does a little later on. You see, that night, the beautiful way Mark is telling this story, he's trying to help us see something here. That night on the sea was actually just a little shadow of a much, much greater and much more serious storm that we're a part of. The storm that we truly needed to be saved from. And that's the chaotic storm of our own sin and separation from the Father. You see, the disciples were afraid that they were going to die. But Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that spiritually speaking, because of sin, we are actually already dead, separated from the author of life. Sin doesn't just make us bad people. It makes us dead. We're, all, we're, we're walking, talking, breathing, but we're not truly living. We needed to be raised to life. The storm of sin had already drowned us, spiritually speaking. Until Jesus intervened. Like Jonah, he threw himself into that ultimate storm, even though he was innocent. The storm that wasn't just going to drown us, it already had. Can you imagine for a minute what what confusion, how unbelievable it must have been. For the same disciples who watched Jesus calm the storm in the boat, not stop the storm at the cross. As Jesus was being arrested and unfairly tried and mocked and beaten and tortured, why didn't Jesus say, that's enough, it's over? Quiet, be still. Why didn't he stand and call that storm to stop? He could have. Why didn't he remove himself from that storm? And church, the gospel, the good news is that because Throwing himself into that ultimate storm was the only way to calm it for you and I. You see, on the boat that night, Jesus did not answer the question, Don't you care? He didn't answer it. Did you notice that? He never really addresses it. Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? He doesn't answer it out on the sea. But he answers it at the cross. I care so much for you that I will die for you. Church, all other storms in this life, as painful, as uncertain, as frightening as they can be, they pale in comparison to the storm of our own separation from the Father, our own sin. And when we look upon Jesus who did not abandon us in that storm, but who actually willingly threw himself into it, We can be reminded, we can be convinced that he is good at all times. Your hope, in other words, is not in the storm stopping right away. 
Your hope is in the one who has saved you from the ultimate storm that tried to take you down. If he was able, if he was willing to do that, certainly he can hold you through this one as well. So what do we do? We stand together. We point each other back to Jesus. We point each other back to his goodness continually. We empathize. We carry each other's burdens because that's what we do as the family of God. And at the same time, we call on Jesus to calm the storm. We pray for one another. We care for one another when the waves are rocking. But at the same time, we know we cannot save one another. Only Jesus can do that. And so we remind each other. We, we, we preach to each other. We encourage each other of his goodness. The truth of his word that we can stand on. And we lead each other to praise simply because he's worthy of it. When the waves are rocking, we come alongside one another and we say our hope and our confidence is in the Lord. He is good. He's good. He's proven it at the cross. He's good. He has not abandoned us. Even if it seems quiet, we look to the cross and say, no, he has not abandoned us. He proved it once and for all. I love how Mark kind of leaves this night really up in the air for the disciples. They seem more confused than ever, don't they? They're terrified after the storm stops. And then what do they say to each other? What do they ask? Who is this? Who is this man? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? And this question just kind of lingers there. It starts to get answered throughout the gospel of Mark. But then finally at the end. At the end of Mark's gospel. It is finally confirmed for us. And it wasn't one of the disciples. It was a Roman soldier standing at the foot of the cross. Two of the hands that put him up on the cross. And Mark says that when he heard Jesus breathe his last breath, that Roman soldier declared, surely this man was the son of God. He answered the question the disciples asked that night. What do we do in the storm? We watch him. We worship him. We ground, in, we ground our hope in him, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray.